Hi everyone, I'm Gates. I'm Kelsey. And welcome to Keller Country. that every time just to like mimic the music that we have going through. Yeah. And it's actually very helpful when we edit because I know exactly where it's supposed to go and where, uh, where I just take it out. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So talk to me. How have you been? What's been new in your life? I'm good. I am so busy this month. This month has been a nightmare. <laughs> yes. Ugh. How about you? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Definitely tired. We just got back from Mississippi yesterday. So was that um, how far of a drive is that for you guys? So we went down to Ocean Springs, which is right outside of Biloxi. And it was about a little less than six hours. But because I'm pregnant, we had to stop every two hours and I'd Mm -hmm. have to stretch. So that basically made it like six and a half hours. But I mean, it was so worth it. I got to see my like my siblings that I haven't seen in forever. We went to my brother and his wife, Rachel's like, it was kind of a vow renewal type thing. Okay. So it was really nice being able to see everyone. You looked so pretty. Your outfit came together perfectly. Yes. Thank you. I was so like nervous just because these are wedding pictures that I was in. Like, yeah. Who knows how <laughs> I would look and I'm going to look back because so many maternity clothes look just geriatric. Okay. So, <laughs> so I am so over maternity clothes. I ordered one batch of like, I mainly just need pants. And mm-hmm. the first batch that came in, the leg holes were literally like the width of a pop can and oh. like hardly even got them over my ankles. And then the second batch just came in and one of the pairs of pants is literally like a parachute. They're ginormous. <gasps> no. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. The leggings I'm, are going to work. I'm hoping they shrink a little bit, but they're going to work. And then the jeans, I don't know if it's just the cut on them, but I typically wear my jeans high, like I like high-waisted pants for everything. Mm -hmm. And these, like the seam hits like below my belly. So it feels like my pants are sagging all day long. (laughs) Like I got home and Matt's like, it looks like you have a load in your pants because they look so saggy. (laughs) That's so mean. (laughs) Don't tell a pregnant person that. (laughs) Well, I knew it. I mean, all day long I was pulling on these things. It was horrible. Oh, yep. So I'm just, I've, I'm convinced that maternity clothes were created by men for men with beer bellies and they were not yes, cut for women. Definitely not. But the thing about pregnancy that's super frustrating is no bump is the same. All of mm-hmm. them are different. And so that's why like what might work for you probably won't work for me. What works for, you know, right. our other friends who are pregnant probably won't work for us. I know. And then on top of that, like I have long legs. So then Mm -hmm. like the jeans today, they're supposed to be um, regular cut and they're like ankle waders. (laughs) It was so bad. (laughs) So for the listeners, how tall are you? I'm 5'10". 
Five ten. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think I'm five six. I'm pretty sure I'm five six. That's what I put on my license. But <laughs> I'm I'm five ten and our always our rule with volleyball was you always add an inch for your shoes. So on a volleyball roster, I'm five eleven. Oh, very nice. I did not know that. <laughs> yep. That's our rule. Well, everybody, I hope by now you have realized that we have a little bit better sound quality. Um, it is not because we figured out the issue. <laughs> It is, um, well, we did figure out the issue, but the Mm -hmm. issue is not fixed on our end. So Gates and I are actually recording remotely today for Mm -hmm. the first time ever. It's very different. I'm so used to like being in the same room sitting across from you. Yeah. And now we have like an awkward angle to where you can see like from my, (laughs) from my mouth (laughs) and I can see your whole face. And so I'm guessing that's how your husband records all the time. Yes. I'm in my husband's studio this, this evening I guess it is um so he has like as you can see all the Seahawks memorabilia and everything um which is exactly why Gates and I created our own at her house yes (laughs) so we would have our own room yes so we are in to Delaware tonight yes so tell me about where you're before we get into Delaware um true crime in the U.S. did you see that man who drove through the Christmas parade in his SUV and killed five people? No, I didn't. Yes. In Wisconsin, they were having their um, like annual Christmas parade, like bands and dancers and Santas. And a man freaking drove his SUV into the parade and killed five people. Holy cow. I know. He's facing five counts of homicide because they believe it to be intentional. Oh my gosh. So are they going to try to get him on first degree? I'm guessing. I didn't, I didn't say that much in the article I was reading. It was an NBC article. So it was mainly just, um, that those were the count, the charges he was facing. And so far five people had been um, killed Mm. and then there were others injured. And, um, it said in there that he was fleeing a domestic something, a domestic violence, something. So I don't know if he was like in a car chase or what was going on, but in the end, they ended up ruling it intentional. Oh my gosh. That I know. I I don't, I don't even want to know what goes through these people's heads. No. Can you imagine? There was one quote in there and it like brought tears to my eyes. It was a picture of an empty stroller that had clearly been hit (gasps) And the man said that he just went from crumpled body to crumpled body looking for his child. Did he ever find him? Well, that wasn't one of the most, the five that were killed were um, older women, a part of a grancing, uh, grancing, a dancing grannies group. <gasps> oh, I my know. <laughs> it's horrible. It is. Oh, by the way, have you been yeah. to Bridge Street during whenever they have those witches there? No. Okay, so we went to Bridge Street um, back in October, and there were women dressed up as witches. Like, they had the big noses, the hats, the dresses, and the brooms, and they were just, like, congregating around this area in Bridge Street. (laughs) So I love when older women get together and just have a blast and do things like that. They're just doing their thing. I just hate that, you know, something like this could happen during a time. Well, it's supposed to be, like, a celebration for the city. I mean, it's... Just Imagine careful. living your life for that many years just to be taken out at a Christmas parade yeah. by some lunatic in a vehicle. I know. Now that we are in Delaware, where are you starting off at? 
I am starting in Smyrna, Delaware. Smyrna. That's a cool mm-hmm. name. <laughs> I am starting in Dover. So it Ooh. looks like it's my turn again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let me um, pull up my Google Doc while not exiting out of our live stream. <laughs> yeah. That's the whole thing with this live stream is if we leave the live, the stream, it like deletes everything we already recorded. So but the bad, bad thing is, like, I want, I hate not seeing you as I'm talking to you and basically I know. Like, presenting to you. So I'm trying to, like, move my Word document towards just, like, over my face so I can still see you and talk to you. Yeah, this is definitely, definitely different. Definitely different. So just give me a few seconds to figure this out. So for the first time ever, I am actually doing a case from the 1800s. Whoa. I know. Going back in time. Yes. Usually I'm, I like things that are a little more current, mm-hmm. but I was uh, looking, I can't even remember what I typed in. And this was, I had gone through a few different results of um, just like cases in Delaware. Of course, there aren't too many just because Delaware is the least, so the seventh least populated state in the United States. But I did find something from now. It's in 1898, but technically it's still the 1800s. That's still the 1800s. <laughs> just like those freaking Gen Zers talk about how we were born in the late 1900s. I know. It's so <laughs> rude. It's so, so rude. rude. Speaking of the Gen Zers. Um, so at work, we just had our Thanksgiving party. Um, and this is going to be our Thanksgiving episode, Gates. Oh, it will be. Yeah, because it'll come out on the 27th. Oh, um, so happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy late Thanksgiving. Hope you had some great turkey. Fingers crossed my husband doesn't burn down our house by making <laughs> us turkey for the first time. He'll be fine. Um, but we were having our work Thanksgiving and we always do a like name that tune game. And last year when we did it, I can't like I did a lot of songs from like the 70s, the 80s and the early 90s, because that's what most of the people that work there. That's what we remember. Yeah. Um, Well, this year we have brought two girls on who are 19 and 20. And so they all of their music is like today's music. Mm hmm. So when I was working on it, I'm like, oh, let me go to 2005 because that's fairly recent. And then I realized, I'm like, Shelby was literally three, three years old. Yes, 2005 (laughs) was 16 years ago. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I told the girls that and they were like, you act like you're so much older than us. And I'm like, "Um, in the music world, I am. I am ancient. (laughs) Yes, like at work, we have an Alexa that plays through the office, and I'll get a pick usually because no one else listens to music while they're at work. Like they just zone it out, but Mm -hmm. I'm a very musical person, so Mm -hmm. I'm always listening to the music, bopping along while I'm working up patients and stuff. I'm the same way. And um, so I'll typically pick like my two favorite men in the whole entire universe, Louis Capaldi and James Arthur. Those are my men. (laughs) And I feel so bad. So um, I just associate Fleetwood Mac with Autumn. 
Like I feel yeah. like they're the perfect autumn band. Absolutely. So I've driven the office nuts because every single morning I'm like, okay, Alexa, play a station based on Fleetwood <laughs> Mac on the work group. And they're like, well, okay, they like a, they don't get a say. Yeah, but I am the youngest person at my office. Well, see. So, yep, so they can't complain too no. much. No. All right. Okay. 1800s Delaware. Yes. Okay. So Dover is the capital and the second largest city in Delaware. And like I had mentioned earlier, it is the seventh least populated state here in the United States. Now, because of where Dover is located and the fact that Delaware was one of the original 13 colonies, Dover is the longest serving capital in the United States, which I found very interesting. I definitely thought it would be in Virginia. Hmm. So Dover, Delaware at the time in 1898, had a population of 3,329 people, which in today, the population is 39,403 people. So it's still very small, but I feel like for the area, it's very large. So the reason that I picked this murder is it is the first murder to use the U.S. Postal Service. Oh. Yes. And it is also known as the Candy Murder. So I think I, I skimmed over this when I was looking for a case. Yes. So I definitely found it interesting. I, um, there's like this short, not a short story, like a short movie on it or a movie short. Um, this was very sensationalized. And, um, can we send pictures through our thing? Um, you're asking hard questions. <laughs> Matt's not here. Um, it doesn't look like it, but you could text it to me. Okay. Let me find my phone first. Okay. Yes. So you will get a bit of a chuckle. Um, so (laughs) what is the brooch on her neck? (laughs) She doesn't really have a neck in that sketch. (laughs) No, she doesn't. Now I will tell you all about these pictures and this woman. Let me pull back up my uh, Google Doc. So John P. Dunning was a famous war correspondent, and he married ex-congressman John Pennington's daughter, Mary Elizabeth Pennington, in February, on February 12th of 1891. Now, Mary Elizabeth goes by her double name, Mary Elizabeth. So during this whole thing, whenever I refer to Mary Elizabeth, that's who I'm talking about. I thought that it would make a lot of sense, but when I was presenting to my husband, uh, once I said Mary Elizabeth the second time, he's like, who's Mary Elizabeth? (laughs) You haven't mentioned the Mary Elizabeth before. I was like, okay. My bad. Yeah. (laughs) So they got married February 12th, 1891 in Dover, Delaware. And shortly after their marriage, they moved to San Francisco for John's job. So a little, about a year later, they had their daughter, her husband, wasn't the best husband. Mm. So he was known for kind of stepping out on their marriage. And at this point, she wasn't aware of it. So some sources say that, you know, one day after their daughter was born, maybe a few years later, doesn't for sure say, but they say that one day he was walking or biking. Both I've seen like some sources that say walking, some sources that say biking. So I'm just going to include them both. But they say that he was traveling through Golden State Park and his wandering eye was caught by a woman sitting on a park bench. So he approached her, he approached her, introduced himself, 
And she said that her name was Curtis. And after Curtis. Holly, yes. <laughs> you, they, they have some very interesting names. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait. Okay. So she said that her name was Curtis and that uh, later on they were talking and he found out that she was married, but her husband, W.A., was away in England at the time. Now, her husband preferred not to use his real name because it was Welcome Alpin. Boston. His name was Welcome. <laughs> Literally, what? his name was Welcome. Yes. Did Same they... spelling and everything. The 1800s are supposed to have very traditional names. Yeah, That is not like one of them. Mary Elizabeth or her yeah. name is Cordelia. Yeah, like those, those are, are those are eighteen hundred names. And then welcome hus- is not. That's no. like naming your child Apple. I mean, <laughs> you know, at least one person has done that. But I mean, her husband's name was John. Her father's name, or um, Mary Elizabeth's father's name was John. Her husband's name was John. Like there are a lot of Johns in this story. And then you have welcome. <laughs> I can't. I can't make too much fun because my name is Gates. I was named after Gates McFadden, though. Not my mom had seen a beautiful gate one day. I mean, whatever, whatever works. Yeah, whatever name you like. I'm yeah. picking a traditional name for my son. So, so are we yeah. for our for our girl for your girl? Yeah. So back to the story. Um, we just introduced Welcome, and later um, she would reveal that her name was not Curtis as she first introduced herself. She said that her name was Cordelia Botkin, and this next part is going to get you. <laughs> she would brag about the fact that she had been photographed more than a hundred times. This was like a big bragging point for her. And her favorite pose was the second picture that I had sent you with her hands behind her head and her elbows out. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Yep. So weird. Everyone, I just want you to take a second. Put your hands behind your head. You can interlace your fingers if you want. And make sure your elbows are out wide. Yep. And then... And then you kind of have to smile big and get your double chin in there too. (laughs) Yes. But that was her favorite pose. I feel ridiculous. But then again, in Victorian era, it was very risque that she was doing things like that. Yes. Because keep in mind, we're in the late 1800s. Yeah. Okay. Now, news articles and um, interviews had said that Cordelia thought very highly of herself despite being described as aging and frumpy. Because at the time, she was in her late 30s, early 40s, when this affair started taking place. A little bit about Cordelia. Her maiden name is Brown, and she grew up in a town in Nebraska called Brownsville. It was named by her father, so I'm guessing they were kind of a wealthy settler-type people, and they founded the town Brownsville. At the time that she met John, she had moved to Stockton, California with her son, Beverly. Beverly? Yes. And her husband, Welcome. Why do they do this? I don't know. Her name is Curtis. Her son's (laughs) name is Beverly. Her husband's name is Welcome. (laughs) That poor kid. That poor. I mean, maybe, well, maybe Beverly was like a name for men back then. That's not a name. No. No, I don't think it's a masculine name, but I have so many male patients with the name Terry. Okay, but Terry's more masculine. 
And I was just actually, Matt and I were just talking about the name Muriel for men. That was a old timey name for men was Muriel. I have never heard that before. Yeah. Chandler Bing's middle name. If you're a friends fan out there. I have not seen a single episode, so Chandler Muriel Bing. <laughs> that that's a nice name, though. I had a friend, a really good friend in high school. His middle name was Glenn, which I was. I thought that was a very feminine name. But working with a lot of older patients, the way that I do, mm-hmm. I found out that Glenn is a very common male name. I don't think I know any females named Glenn. I only know men named Glenn. Yeah. Hmm. I just, I don't know why I thought it was feminine, but for some reason that I did. Okay. So, um, talking about her living in Stockton, their son with their son, Beverly and her husband, welcome. Shortly after Cordelia and John met, they started their flirtation, which turned into an affair. John was described as multiple people by multiple people as being a better alcoholic and gambler than a husband which he obviously proved by stepping out on his wife. Mm -hmm. He ended up carrying on his affair for three years with Cordelia before Mary Elizabeth had found out. And as soon as she realized that he was seeing someone else, um, she found out, like, she found out about the mistress, and then she found out that the mistress was more important than her and more important than their child that they had together. So she told him, enough is enough. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm moving back home. So she packed up her daughter and they went back to her father's home in Dover. And that's where she stayed until she unfortunately was murdered. Once Mary Elizabeth was out of the picture, their simple love affair turned into a full blown affair. And it is said that if there was anyone that Cordelia loved more than herself, it was John Dunning. Cordelia didn't want to live in Stockton. She wanted to live closer to John. So they both took up residence at the Victoria Hotel, which made it much easier for them to carry on their love affair. Now, of course, in passing, they would talk about their previous lives, you know, just basically everything, I guess, pillow talk or just talking as companions since she moved away from her husband and her child and his wife and child moved away from him. So he would tell her things about his wife and a few things that she followed in the back of her mind were that she had local friends. Uh, Mary Elizabeth had local friends out in San Francisco. And one of them was named Mrs. Corberly. And I guess that name stuck because it was Cordelia and Corberly. But another thing, which, I mean, I don't know who, actually, I do know one person who doesn't love chocolate, but Mary Elizabeth loved chocolate. I love chocolate. I'm too. sure you love chocolate. <laughs> the only person that doesn't love chocolate is my sister, Avery, which I do not understand. It's just wrong, Avery. It's so wrong, Ave. Now, later, John ended up losing his job when his employer found out that he was embezzling over $4,000 to pay for his gambling debts. Now, you guys know that I love to calculate the difference between money, the inflation rate. So (laughs) she gets really upset if you don't do that in your episode. (laughs) Yes. Now in today's money, that $4,000 turned into $133,295.90. Whoa. That's a nice chunk of change. That's, that's owing a lot of people a lot of money. Yes. And the fact that, I mean, it was his employer. So obviously he got, He got sacked. 
Yeah. Now, later, he ended up accepting a job to cover the Spanish-American War, which would cause him to relocate to Puerto Rico. He told Cordelia that when he was done, he would not be returning to San Francisco to be with her. He would actually be returning to Dover to work on his failed marriage with Mary Elizabeth. Oh, I bet Curtis was not happy about that. (laughs) Curtis was not. She was livid. She begged and pleaded for him to come back to her in San Francisco. But he assured her, like, once he's back from Puerto Rico, he was going to be with his wife. He made a vow to his wife, and now he decided, after so many years, that he was going to stick to it. Cordelia went with John across the bay as he was leaving. They said their goodbyes, and it said that it was a very bitter and a very tearful goodbye. I'm guessing on her side. Mm-hmm. He had Once already he w- made his decision. Yeah. I mean, he had made his decision to go back to his wife, and she was his mistress. They they were adults. Like, <laughs> just in the last case about how these women were adults, like um, yeah. Gina and Janet and Lynn, like, All of them were adults. They acted like adults. John Mm -hmm. decided that he was going to act like an adult. Good. Shortly after they said their goodbye, and once he was gone, Cordelia started working on her revenge. If she couldn't have him, then no one could. So at first, it just started as taunting letters to Mary Elizabeth, basically telling her not to get back with her husband and telling her that reconciliation with her husband was not a good idea. And one letter she wrote, From a trip to Los Angeles, he was constantly with this interesting and pretty woman, who, by the way, is an Englishwoman. She is now divorced from her husband and allowing all marked intimacy. What does that even mean? (laughs) What? Basically, that they were able to do the nasty, or that they were doing the nasty. And she was trying to say that the woman that she saw in passing was interesting and pretty. That's because she's frumpy. She's, she's not interesting or pretty, <laughs> no. let me tell you. I mean, good for self-confidence. Like, everyone needs to have self-confidence. I know I don't think that I'm the prettiest person in the world, but I would say that I'm pretty. Maybe at the time, the way that she looked was considered pretty. But news articles said, <laughs> news articles said that she was frumpy. Which she is not describing herself at all. If an 1800s news article is saying you're frumpy, you're probably not classified as pretty. (laughs) Probably not. Now, as she's writing these letters, friends of Cordelia's describe her in the following months after John leaving that she was melancholy and almost delirious in her sadness. So Cordelia then devised a plan that was inspired by a similar incident in Britain where she was raised. Now, I did not look up this similar case at all. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to tell you about this case. Okay. At some point in the summer of 1898, Cordelia went to the Owl Drugstore and purchased two ounces of powdered arsenic. On July 31st, 1898, there we go. Cordelia bought a box of chocolates from the Market Street candy store in San Francisco, and she just went on a shopping spree to get everything that she needed for her little murder kit. When she bought bought these chocolates, she requested that the chocolates be placed in a box and that there be enough room for her to place a present inside. But in reality, it wasn't that she wanted a plain box as not to draw draw attention away from, like, the chocolates and stuff. Mm -hmm. She wanted it so... 
uh, the plane box didn't have a logo, so it couldn't be traced back to her. Oh. Yeah. So she was a little intelligent. <laughs> frumpy, next, yet intelligent. Yes, frumpy, yet intelligent. Uh, next, after she bought the chocolates, she went to a novelty score, score, a novelty store called the City of Paris or the City of Paris oh. and bought an embroidered handkerchief. Oh, Yep, she went home, and later she ended up lacing the chocolate bonbons that she had bought with lethal amounts of arsenic and placed the handkerchief on top. Very beautiful presentation of these murder chocolates. Cordelia then wrote a note saying, With love to yourself and baby, Mrs. C. Oh, that's creepy. I definitely am not going to be opening any chocolates for many listeners. I'm sorry, my friends. (laughs) The chocolates are going in the trash. Yep. <laughs> Only packaged Oreos, please. That's, <laughs> that is what I would request. <laughs> yes, not opened. <laughs> so after she had writ that, written that letter, placed everything nice, beautiful presentation, four days later, on August 4th, 1898, she mailed the package from Ferry Station Post Office in San Francisco, and she mailed it with no return address. So once again, it couldn't be traced back to her. Mm-hmm. It was addressed to Mrs. John P. Dunning and arrived five days later on August 10th to the Dover Post Office, which I feel like is an incredible feat. So not only is it going from San Francisco, California to Dover, Delaware, but it's also chocolates, which in my mind would melt if it's in a hot transportation train. What month was this in 1898? I mean, it was August. Yeah, it'd be hot. But they surely did not. Wait, were there cars in 1898? (laughs) What I can tell you is that it was on a train. (laughs) Okay. Now I need to know. (laughs) Quick, Google it. What year were cars invented? 1886, there were cars. Yes, barely. (laughs) (laughs) Only a few people on the road. Did you know the first ticket was written for someone going over eight miles an hour? So once it arrived five days later on August 10th to the Dover Post Office, they were notified that they had received a package in the mail. So Mary Elizabeth's young nephew, Harry, went to the post office to go pick up the package and he brought it back home for them. He gave it to Mary Elizabeth, and she decided to open the package after supper with her and the rest of the family once they retired onto the veranda. Oh. Yes, super fancy. (laughs) I wish I had a veranda to retire to. I know. Just to, can I retire to the living room? Yes. I will retire to the living room with some hot chocolate and a fire. Yes. Because it's getting cool over here. Mary Elizabeth opened the package, and she found a very fancy candy box, plain but fancy, with a handkerchief inside, a little note on top of it, and under the note and handkerchief were chocolate bonbons. After reading the slip of paper, she could not for the life of her remember who Mrs. C was, but she did have many friends that lived in San Francisco from her time there, and she had absolutely no reason to believe that someone would want to do her and her baby harm. So they all indulged in the chocolate. So six humans and one bunny ate the candy. Oh no. Yeah. So Are technically this supposed is, to have chocolate? I don't think so. I don't think a lot of animals can have chocolate. No. So I'm sorry if I said in the beginning that this was a case of two murders. It's technically three. 
Oh, man. So Mary Elizabeth and her sister Ida Dean indulged the most in the chocolates because I don't blame them. (laughs) Shortly after, all six people became violently ill. Shortly after indulging in the bonbon, six people became violently ill, and they were all complaining of the same thing, stomach pain with intense vomiting. Unfortunately, the bunny was the first to die. Mm. I'm sorry, guys. And unfortunately, after the bunny, Ida Jean died the next day on August 11th, and Mary Elizabeth followed her the following day on the 12th. Hmm. So shortly after they ingested those chocolates, within 48 hours, the two sisters were dead. Jeez. Of course, Mary Mary Elizabeth's father was furious, and he immediately started an investigation into the murder of his two daughters, because what father wouldn't? Yeah. So in previous months, I had mentioned earlier that she had been receiving anonymous letters about an affair that her husband was having. And the father noticed that the writing from the package matched the anonymous letters that Mary Elizabeth had received the previous weeks. Wow. As with all investigations, the first person that you look at is the husband. (laughs) So police immediately questioned her husband, John. And as soon as they let him know what was going on, that there's a murder investigation for his wife, Mary Elizabeth, he immediately left his post in Puerto Rico so he could go figure out what is going on. He could be yeah. with his daughter, their family, everything like that. Once he was home, he was shown the package of the chocolates, the package that the chocolates came in, the letters from the anonymous person, and immediately he knew that handwriting. Hmm. I don't think he knew exactly whose handwriting it was, but he knew that it was familiar. Yeah. They presented the remaining chocolates to a chemist named Dr. Wood, and he was the one to confirm that the bonbons did contain arsenic. Mm. So shortly after that, um, I guess John had an aha moment, and he remembered telling Cordelia about a friend of Mary Elizabeth's named Mrs. Corberly or Mrs. C., and her love of chocolates. So two things that were included in her murder. Mm-hmm. After the confirmation of the chocolates being poisoned with arsenic, they went to San Francisco to meet with a handwriting analyst named Theodore Katka. Kitka. Sorry. He confirmed absolutely beyond or without a doubt that the handwriting on the package from the the handwriting on the package and the handwriting from the anonymous letters was a match, confirming the theory that Cordelia is the person who wrote the notes. Hmm. At the time, the police chief in San Francisco, his name was Isaiah Lees, he led the investigation, and immediately after this handwriting was confirmed to be the same, he went and brought Cordelia into custody. And believe it or not, she was found with her estranged husband, Welcome, and their son, Beverly. So basically, long story short, the police went to all of the shops that Cordelia had gone to, and they confirmed with the clerks from the candy store, the drug store, and the novelty store that Cordelia had been the one in their shops, and she did buy all of the items for the lace chocolates, and each clerk recognized the beautiful Cordelia. The clerk from the candy store even went a step further, and she claimed that the candy box that they showed her matched the one that she sold Cordelia. She said it was identical in every way. Whoa. 
Yeah, that is a great memory. Yeah. (laughs) Well, later they went to the post office and found the man that actually assisted Cordelia mail the package. And he said that the reason why he remembered Cordelia was because the box was addressed to Mrs. John Dunning, which was similar to his name, which was John Dunning. Dunnigan. Oh, I was like, that's the same name. That's that's the same name. I just can't read. No, Uh, Mrs. John Dunning, and then his name was John Dunnigan. Dunnigan. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I would probably remember that. I mean, yeah. And you would too. Literally. Your name is very unique. So anyone with a similar name, you're going to remember. Absolutely. Later on in the investigation, because this is literally the first murder to ever involve the Postal Service, they weren't sure who needed to proceed over the trial. So since they had police from Dover and police from San Francisco, they -hmm. needed to decide which state would be the one heading the trial. After a ton of back and forth between the two different jurisdictions, the Supreme Court was the one that decided that a widower named Judge Carol Cook from San Francisco would hear the case. Now, at the time, this murder was sensationalized, and it was on newspapers all across America. And in one article I read, it actually compared it to the O.J. Simpson case. Oh, wow. Like how sensationalized that was, how Mm -hmm. every single person knows about the glove, the murder. Like, I don't know much about the O.J. Simpson case, but I know that that is a huge case, and it's still talked about today. And even if you don't know details of the O.J. Simpson case, you know you know that there is an O.J. Simpson case. Absolutely. Now, uh, witnesses from Dover had to travel to San Francisco two different times to hear the case. And a couple weeks later, on December 30th, 1898, Judge Cook found Cordelia Bodkin guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, since this was obviously very premeditated. Yeah, she literally planned the whole thing from the other side of the United States. And on top of that, after she bought everything, she waited four days to actually go to the post office to send it out to her. So she sat on it. I mean, she she really knew what she was doing. Absolutely. Now, after he went ahead and found her guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. This was a couple months later on February 4th that he actually handed down a life prison, a life in prison sentence. Now, he did take pity on her at the time because she was a woman, I'm guessing, and because mm-hmm. she was a lover scorned, and he sent her to the Branch County Jail instead of the San Quentin State Penitentiary, which is where I personally believe she should have gone. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I threw in a little detail earlier about Judge Cook, and I mentioned that he was a widower. Mm -hmm. Now, one Sunday, Judge Cook was on his way to visit his wife's grave, and he noticed none other than Cordelia riding in a streetcar unaccompanied by guards. What? His thought exactly. (laughs) So he did a little bit of investigating, and it turned out that Cordelia was trading sexual favors for freedom and other are you kidding me (laughs) no i'm not i could not make this up how does the frumpy bitch get to trade sex to get out of jail free i have i mean technically she was still in jail she's still frumpy (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm not gonna argue on that (laughs) unbelievable 
But everyone is beautiful in their own way. I guess because she traded sexual favors in jail. Maybe Not she was one of the people few with women arsenic. There. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just I'm I don't want a listener to look like her and get upset because Listen. we're over here calling her frumpy. No, we didn't call her frumpy. 18 news articles the 1800s <laughs> news articles called her frumpy. So yes. And you know what? You are frumpy if you kill someone with chocolate. Yeah, that is exactly. rude. Hateful. Yeah, and a bunny. And a bunny uncalled for. Ridiculous. So some of the sexual favors that she was doing, it granted her the freedom to leave. But, of course, she would have to come back. And uh, other extravagant privileges that she would have would that she had had was nice bed linens. And she had even gotten better food than the rest of the inmates. See, I'm fine with that. She's still in jail. She yeah. just doesn't get to get out. Exactly. Yeah. I don't I definitely don't think that she should have gotten out. Period. Sexual favors or not. <laughs> no. Like she was a woman scorned. Like she's in her um late 40s at this point. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1904, the Supreme Court actually retried her case because of circumstantial evidence. It didn't say exactly what that circumstantial evidence was, but once again, on August 2nd, 1904, she was found guilty of first-degree murder, two counts of it. Good. Now, I didn't know that there was a great San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Oh, neither did I. Apparently, there was a great, it's called the Great San Francisco Earthquake of 1906. <laughs> but and it uh, was great <laughs> it was great guys <laughs> but after that the branch county jail that cordelia was at became too overcrowded and she was transferred to san quentin where in my opinion she originally should have gone mm-hmm. and once again she was unable to enjoy the small comforts that that little jail had offered her during her final years of life Almost all the men in her life started rapidly dying off. Oh, my God. So her father passed away in 1900. Her husband, Welcome, died in May of 1904 from a heart condition. And Beverly, her son, died the following year in 1905 from the exact same heart condition that took his father's life. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I I do not wish any ill will to them. I hate that that happened to them. I hate yeah. that. All of these people passed away in such a short period of time, but this ended up um, kind of contributing to her death as well. Okay. So alcoholism finally caught up with John Denning in April of 1907, and he passed away as well. Cordelia became so depressed after being in this horrible jail where she was unable to enjoy the small comforts of life, like trading sexual favors <laughs> for leaving for the prison, good linens, and good food. She was so depressed um, and also over the many deaths of her family and her former lover. They claimed that her sorrow was so great that her health began to suffer. And on March 7th, 1910, Cordelia finally passed away in prison at the age of 56. Hmm. On her death certificate. It's pretty old for early 1900s. I guess so. I mean, I'm over here thinking, like, 56 is not old at all. For 1910, that's pretty old. Yeah, that is pretty old, I guess. Let me look up real fast. Oh, she was 
ancient in 1890. (laughs) The average life expectancy was 42 and a half years. Yeah, see? Holy cow, she was old. (laughs) Yeah. Dang. Old and frumpy. She was old and frumpy. (laughs) I guess that's why she was described as aging in the beginning. Because she was already nearing her end or what should have been. What should have been her expiration date at 42. Yeah. I'm sure if she would have died at 42, the murders never would have happened. Yeah. On March 7th, 1910, she passed away in prison prison at the ancient age of 56 years old. Holy cow. And on her death certificate, her cause of death is listed as softening of the brain due to melancholy. Oh, I didn't know that was a thing. I did not either, but for Don't Cordelia, get too sad. Your brain will soften. I mean, my brain is already pretty soft. (laughs) And that, my friends, is the first murder to use the U.S. Postal Service, a.k.a. the candy murder. Oh, well, (laughs) I I did not use the U.S. Postal Service and nobody in my case is frumpy. Nobody was described as frumpy. (laughs) I feel like you very rarely find articles listing people as frumpy. I know. This is terrible. My mom used to say like some of our outfits were frumpy. Like if you... Mom! (laughs) I know. Like like if you just were like bumming around, you just looked kind of (laughs) frumpy. I mean, I look frumpy now. Instead of paying for maternity shirts, I decided to move from a small scrub top to a large scrub top. And look, you can't even tell I'm pregnant. (laughs) If I can get back. Nope. (laughs) And then... (laughs) As soon as you see your waist. As soon as you clench your waist. (laughs) Well, um, a little bit more about Delaware. Um... Did you know that the state of Delaware only has three counties? I did not. I knew that it was tiny, but not that. Yeah. Not that In the tiny. whole state, there are only three counties. Wow. And the state has more shoreline than the U.S. Virgin Islands and Guam combined. What? I know. How? Wait, let me look up the state, what the state looks like. It's Well, it's all on the water. The whole, well, the whole one side of the state's on water. Some of those um, stops along the shoreline are right on theme with our podcast. They are called Slaughter Beach, Slaughter Neck Road, oh. Murder Ca- and oh. Murder Kill River. <laughs> Dude, I know. What the heck? A lot of people believe that um, they all got their names from battles and stuff that took took place throughout history. Because, like you said earlier. It was one of the original 13 colonies, so it has seen Mm -hmm. every battle. Um, A lot of the locals say the names come from the millions of dead horseshoe crabs that wash up on the beaches. So regardless, a little bit dark. A little bit dark, Delaware. (laughs) Um, A lot of it dark. Route 1, the road, Route (laughs) 1, runs directly through a state park that sits just north of Smyrna, Delaware. Mm Mm-hmm. Smyrna is actually in two out of the three counties. It is in Kent and Newcastle counties. Oh. And like you already said, the, po- the current population of Smyrna is just over 11,000. At the time of this case, in 1986, the population would have been just under five. 
So oh, 5,000, wow. not five people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a huge jump in like just 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. So it grew pretty quickly um, through that period of time. So the state park that I mentioned just a little bit ago is called Blackbird State Forest and is actually where my case takes place. Okay. Blackbird State Forest is in the northern part of the state where, De- where the Delaware Bay separates the state from New Jersey. So a little bit towards the top, like where it squares mm-hmm. off a little bit. Um, and it sits only about seven miles north of Smyrna. Blackbird okay. State Forest is a very popular destination for all kinds of outdoor recreation activities. The forest has over 6,000 acres of native oaks, yellow poplars, and maple trees. Are there even 6,000 acres in Delaware? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Apparently. Um, there are over 40 miles of hiking, horseback, and biking trails in the state park. Oh, wow. In the winter, all of those trails are converted and, like, um, not beat down, um, but they're, like, compacted down and used for cross-country skiing. And That's recently, cool. in the in the more recent years, this wasn't there in 1986, but um, Blackburn now has a 2,200-foot paved nature trail that has been specifically designed and installed for wheelchair accessibility. That is awesome. I know. I love that. Me too. There are four picnic areas and eight campsites to choose from in Blackbird. The campsites are not just regular campsites, though, like not the kind that you drive up to, put a camper in, put your tent up. They are described as primitive and cannot be be accessed by car. So (laughs) I've actually stayed in campgrounds like this. So what you do is you pull up and you park in like a little gravel parking lot and then you actually backpack in so you have to carry all of your all of your stuff in that sounds like a lot of fun I've never stayed I I don't think that I've ever stayed in a campground like that it is pretty fun they usually have like wheelbarrows and stuff up there um by by where you park so that you can bring your stuff in (laughs) that's so cute yeah um unusual for state parks blackbird state forest is open hunting and catch and release fishing So it sounds like a beautiful place for an amazing weekend of outdoorsiness. It does, but I have a feeling that I'm not going to want to go there anytime soon. No, you probably not. (laughs) And you know what? (laughs) So I made a note in here. Marriage is unfortunate sometimes. Oh, Oh, man. And the reason why is because I absolutely adore my husband and I would not trade him for anything ever. Mm -hmm. But he's the least outdoorsy guy I know, and I love the outdoors. Like, oh. I love camping. I love fishing, cross-country skiing. He does fish. He does, like, he prefers, like, deep-sea fishing, but he doesn't mm-hmm. like he doesn't like hiking. I love to hike. I was about to say, we should go to the Rainbow Mountain, oh, Rainbow Mountain Nature Preserve in Madison at some point. I didn't even know but, that was there. Oh, my gosh. It's beautiful. I have some pictures on my Instagram. But, um... We should go when we're not super pregnant because uh, yeah. that's well, a big hike. I was going to say, like, when I was younger in college, I used to go on, like, random hikes alone and would literally not even tell my roommates where I was. Like, I would just get up and go. How are you still alive? I know. And, Dude. like, true crime has completely ruined my spontaneity. <laughs> 
so, I have never been that way. I I don't know. Like it was just I guess this phase I was going through, but I definitely do not go alone now. Good. Um, and I always pack my knife and my pepper spray. So don't don't scare me in the woods. That's what yes. I have to say about that. <laughs> no, I refuse to go anywhere alone. And if I do go somewhere alone, like I'm staying in my car. Like whenever I go grocery shopping, I do the Target pickup. Yeah. But it all stems from, I think I was in high school at the time. I was at Walmart shopping with one of my girlfriends. Mm-hmm. And this guy came up to me and just grabbed a handful of my ass. That like, is disgusting. Yes. And like, I was, I was probably like 17 at the time. Like I was underage. Oh. Like, so I don't, I don't like to be touched by people that I don't know. Like, no. I'm not even a hugger for my friends. The only person that I really hug is my friend who I've known since like middle school. Right. And my husband and my family. But I, I can't go anywhere alone because of that, because I'm afraid that something like that is going to happen again. And I found out that I don't have a flight or fight response. It is a flight response. Every time I am confronted with like nothing like that has ever happened to me, thankfully, but like anytime I'm in a situation where I'm fight or flight, I'm like just completely dumbfounded. Like, oh, uh, <laughs> What do I do now? <laughs> like my brain just doesn't work fast enough. <laughs> yes, for myself, I'm flight, but I'm sure if something happened, like to one of my sisters or any of my siblings, I would pound a mofo down. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But when it comes to myself, and that's why I don't like going places alone. It's a flight response. Yeah. On September twentieth, nineteen eighty-six, a New Jersey couple set out on a lovely afternoon walk after they set up their campsite deep within the um, Blackbird State Forest. Shortly into their walk, around 20 feet off the main trail they were on, they found the body of 28-year-old Jane Marie Pritchard. That's not a lovely hike. No, it is not a lovely hike. Um, So like your case, my victim also goes by both of her names, Jane Marie. Um, Jane Marie was born to Audrey and Walter Pritchard in 1958 in Barnesville, Maryland. Maryland, Maryland. (laughs) She grew up riding horses and loving nature on a 38-acre farm with her two brothers and sister. Wow. Her parents still lived there until they passed away, like forever. Actually, I don't even know if they've passed away yet. I didn't even look that up. Regardless, the last article, um, one of her brothers was talking about her case, and he was in his 50s. So um, his parents would have been old at least in their 70s yeah yeah jane marie studied at the university of maryland and after graduating with her undergrad she took a cross-country drive all by herself once she took the time to explore she headed back to school to pursue her master's degree in botany she and her mom actually shared this love of plants together and both had extremely green thumbs so that's what stemmed her interest in botany and why she decided to pursue her master's. In 1986, Jane Marie was living in Clarksburg, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C., and only about a two-hour drive from Blackbird State Forest. So at this point in time, she had been working on a research project for about three years. The project itself um, (laughs) was studying a summer vine known as ground bean or hog peanut, 
And it's an, <laughs> I know. I didn't think that you were going to say peanut for a second. <laughs> just the way that you pronounce that. <laughs> hog peanut. Um, um, and the hog peanut is actually a native plant to that area and has edible seeds that sprout above ground as well as below ground under like oh. through the root system. So That's I had to, I had to look it up. Of course it's, it is interesting. One of her primary spots to study the ground bean was Blackbird State Forest. She had visited the, the state park numerous times over the course of those three years that she was working on her thesis. Um, and Jane Marie was not the only botany enthusiast to frequent Blackbird State Forest. Many people who did any kind of research in the field visited Blackbird because majority of the 6,000 acres of state park were untouched and had little maintenance. So in any other scenario, we think of like bad or little maintenance as a bad thing because it's overgrown and this and that. But for nature, mm -hmm. it's prime. Like that's what nature is intended for, right? It's intended yeah. to grow and, and not have um, constant maintenance. So it, it just allows the plants and trees to take a more natural um, life course. <laughs> um, and it provides the best resources for authentic research. Jane Marie's trip in September 1986 was no different than any of her other trips in the years prior. She loaded up a blue and white Chevy Blazer with all of her research equipment that she'd need for her stay. She stayed with a friend nearby the night before just so that she wouldn't have to leave so, so early because um, she needed to be at the park super early. Um, so on the morning of September 20th, she headed out and to start her research again. It's estimated that she arrived to the park around 7 a.m. So um, she definitely was there very early. Mm -hmm. The Chevy Blazer was found parked alongside an access road south of the park. Um, she had set up her equipment near the Blazer about 30 yards off of the, that access road that it was found on into the forest. So she wasn't on the road. She was like went straight in. So according to all of all, everyone who knew her, this trip was intended to be her last one for a while as she was nearly finished with her thesis and the last information she needed for it would have been collected on this trip. Had everything gone as planned, she would have returned back to Maryland, finished her thesis, and received her master's degree only a few months later. So the nature of her research had a significant effect on noting the time of her death because she was actually observing the way the ground beans leaves turn toward the sun throughout the day. So she had been recording the changes literally minute by minute since she got there that morning. So that so interesting. I know. I wish they would have posted like her incomplete thesis or something. That would have been cool. That would have been cool. Great like tribute to her. Yeah. So when... The investigation started, they took a look at her notes, and they stopped abruptly just before 10 a.m. So this kind of gave them an idea of, again, because she had been taking notes literally every minute since she arrived, um, obviously something happened around 10 a.m. Later that same afternoon is when the couple from New Jersey found her body. Jane Marie was found with a gunshot wound to the back of the head. The couple immediately called 911 and reported that they, what they had found. Now, the investigation became significantly more difficult than we would hope, um, because like I mentioned before, hunting was legal in the state park. Oh. So, yes. So, September 20th, 1986 was a Saturday. That following Monday, the 22nd, a man came forward and said he had seen Jane Marie alive just after 10 a.m. 
he was out squirrel hunting and he said he saw her working and said he saw another hunter in her vicinity. Another, another article I read said that he saw this other hunter talking to her. Um, but majority of the article said it was in her vicinity. So Mm -hmm. nearby. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about squirrel hunting in Delaware. Okay. I'm interested. Let's talk. (laughs) So the more popular hunting seasons like deer season start a little bit later than September. However, according to Delaware regulations, gray squirrel season starts September 15th and goes through February 5th. Oh, wow. And there are rules that come along with Delaware squirrel hunting um, that we have to take into consideration as well. Beginning November 6th is when deer hunting season starts. So there's a period of time between September 15th and November 6th where it's only squirrel. Okay. According to the Delaware hunting regulations, if the squirrel season overlaps with deer season, squirrel hunters have to wear at least 400 square inches of hunter orange. And as a minimum, it has to be on their head, chest, and back. So that hunter orange is that blaze, that really bright orange Mm -hmm. um, that you can see from miles away. Like you can spot it across, uh, definitely across the canyon. Mm -hmm. Being that Jane Marie's body was found in September on September 20th, any hunters that were out in those woods, including our possible witness and the man he mentioned in his call, would have more than likely been wearing regular camouflage and not that blaze orange. Mm-hmm. So when I say regular camouflage, it's not hunting camo is very different than like the stereotypical camouflage design we see in clothing stores. So typically you purchase camouflage to match your trees, foliage, the season you're in. Like you can buy um, snow camo that's designed for hunting in the snow. Um, So when I think of seeing a hunter in camouflage, I'm imagining that type, not the stereotypical. Mm -hmm. Um, With that said, it is very possible that Jane Marie did not even notice that that hunter was there um, or the one who called in stating he saw her and the other man. The man who called in immediately cooperated with police and even worked with a sketch artist to describe the man he saw near Jane Marie that morning. He was also able to describe her almost exactly, the clothes she was wearing. Um, He mentioned the research equipment around her. So it was very obvious that he wasn't, this was not fake. The sketch was released to the press and printed on flyers all over Delaware. And one of the things police considered right away was had it been an accidental shooting. You know, it is squirrel season, so maybe a hunter saw her movement and mistake it, mistook it for a squirrel and just shot. Um, and to, with it being to the back of the head, it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say I've never been squirrel hunting But I do know that it's quick reflex hunting. So like with deer hunting, you typically sit and wait, right? Mm -hmm. With squirrel hunting, you walk through and you kind of scare up the squirrels and then you shoot them. So it takes a lot more reflex. So I would imagine, you know, if we're looking at this being an accidental shooting, any movement, you're kind of like uh, on guard. You're kind of waiting for it, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, Although this seems like a very possible scenario, police quickly ruled it out. Oh. Yeah. Jane Marie's autopsy confirmed that she had bled to death from shotgun wounds to her left shoulder and neck. And because of the range indicated by the wounds, they ruled the death a homicide. 
The DuPont County technicians did an analysis of the gunshot pellets found in her body, but found nothing significant about them. They were just ordinary shotgun pellets. They, of course, investigated the entire area in the woods where Jane Marie had set up all of her research equipment. They used metal detectors, sifted the dirt. They looked for prints on any of her equipment. Maybe somebody, you know, thought it was expensive and was trying to steal it. Literally trying to find any motive to this. There were reportedly a few undisclosed pieces of evidence that were sent to the FBI for processing. My guess is it was likely very little evidence that was found. So if they disclosed it, it could ruin the chance of any future investigation. So sometimes in in those instances, they'll keep things private. During the investigation, police brought in over 300 people for questioning. Wow. Yeah. Including our squirrel hunting friend who called in. I could see the person kind of wanting attention and therefore inserting himself into the investigation. Right. So I guess that makes sense. Yep. So they called him in. Um, The witness has remained unnamed, at least in all the articles I read on the case. Um, I did not find a name for him. But they did describe him as being in his late 20s. And he lived near Newark and was working as a janitor at a pharmaceutical company there. Police grew more suspicious of him because the more they questioned him, the more inconsistent his story became. But playing devil's advocate... You could ask me the same story 600 times, and each time I'm probably going to tell it different, you know? Yeah. Like, so I can I can understand the police's side where you immediately raise red flag to any inconsistencies, but I can also understand if I'm being questioned repeatedly over the same thing that I've already told police I willingly came forward to tell police, I'm probably going to be frustrated, and mm-hmm. things are going to come out differently. They're going to be misheard or misinterpreted by depending on the detective in October of that same year police charged that witness with first degree murder and possession of a deadly weapon during commission of a felony in the death of Jane Marie Pritchard oh I was not expecting that yes he was booked and held without bail like I already kind of said I know it sounds pretty compelling because he was the only one to come forward and say he was there Mm-hmm. But remember, we still have those pieces of evidence somewhere that were sent to Washington. And in 1986, DNA testing was a brand new concept. And this mm-hmm. was actually one of the very first cases in the U.S. to use DNA testing. There was only one lab in the t- entire U.S. that was even doing DNA testing at the time, and it was in California. So one of the pieces they did say was a single piece of hair. And a detective, James Hendricks, took that single piece of hair and flew out with it to California to that one lab that could perform the testing. And that's what they did. Um, In the meantime, police acted on a search warrant for the janitor witness's home and sent a sample of his hair to California as well. And it was not a match. You are not the murderer. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't want to think that it was him. I thought he was just trying to be like a a good citizen. Just being, trying to be a good guy. So in August, 1987, after 10 months of living in Gander Hill prison, all of the previous charges against him were dropped and the janitor was released. Nice. With that release, the case almost immediately sizzled out. They had no further leads on who killed Jane Marie. Um, A new cold case unit was formed in 2014, and the first case they looked at was hers. 
the 2015 article that I, I read on this um, from the Delaware Online said that they had sent several more items to undisclosed labs for further testing. One of the detectives on the case, Thomas Orzachowski, said, that, name. I know, or I think Orzachowski said they're expecting results any day. So that was in 2015. Unfortunately, I was not able to find any further reports on if those results came back. So I'm assuming they likely didn't. Mm-hmm. They did release the original composite sketch of that our janitor friend helped police with, um, but there have not been any leads since it was re-released. The description released with the sketch is as follows. A Caucasian male with a beard, approximately 5'9 or 5'10, medium build, wearing a brown jacket and blue jeans. So a very plain looking man. <laughs> yeah. White man with a beard, medium build. Oh man, haven't seen any of those ever. Yeah, married to one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's it's unfortunate because even the sketch is basic. It It just looks like a normal dude. Any further information or tips on Jane Marie's case can be provided to the Cold Case Homicide Squad by calling Detective Brian Shahan at 302-395-2781 or Glenn Davis at 302-395-8216. You can also report tips or information to Crime Stoppers at 800-TIP-3333, and that's 800-847-3333. And that is the cold case of Jane Marie Pritchard. I hope we so, find something. I know. Because I don't know if we've talked about it, but since releasing did the it. case on... Yeah. <laughs> so a couple, uh, like a week after we did Arkansas, uh, my Grammy called me and she was like, now Gatesy, I'm not saying it's you, but I'm saying... That after you released your podcast, the FBI has someone, unfortunately he's dead, but they have a person of interest in the case of missing Morgan Nick, the abduction of Morgan Nick. It was our podcast. Let's be real. (laughs) (laughs) That would be so amazing if it was. But I mean, like we've been saying, um, like we said in the Arkansas episode, Tips have been pouring in for years. Yeah. And it could have been that one of these recent tips, they were able to kind of follow through. Mm-hmm. And let me pull it up real fast because I wasn't intending on talk about talking about this, mm-hmm. but it reminded me that I needed to. And I called my Mimi after. Uh, so I have a Grammy and a Mimi. All of my grandparents have different names. And um, I was asking her like, Hey, is everything okay? Like what's, what's going on in Arkansas? What's going on in Alma right now? And she was like, Oh, your aunt Amber came over today. And, uh, she was telling us that the FBI is looking for information about this guy named Billy Jack Lennox, uh, for the Morgan Nick investigation. So, um, a little bit about this is, um, the FBI is actually currently requesting information and help from anyone who knew, Billy Jack Links, L-I-N-C-K-S. Some of these say Links and some of these say like Linux. There's an extra I. I don't know. And they're asking whether it be through school, work, church, or any other social activity, they need any and all information about him and the details about his entire life. Mm -hmm. So that's crazy. um, 
He served in the U.S. Army during World War II, worked for an airline in Dallas, Texas. He returned to Van Buren, Arkansas, which is right in between Fort Smith and Alma. It's literally like the next town over. Mm -hmm. And approximately two months after Morgan's 1995 disappearance, he attempted to abduct a young girl in Van Buren at a location eight miles from the baseball field where Morgan was last seen. Unfortunately, he died in prison back in 2000. Yeah. Well, hopefully they can get some information on who he was and find something to connect him. Yeah, and see if maybe we can find Morgan, or if we can't find the person, find the remains. Right, exactly. Just give her family some sort of closure. Absolutely. So the Delaware State Police Troop 6 is issuing a gold alert for Tyler Christopher Reed, 25, of Bear, Delaware. He was last seen on foot on October 27th, 2021, at approximately 10.47 p.m. in the Bear area. Attempts to contact or locate Tyler have been unsuccessful, and there is a concern for his safety and well-being. A little bit about Tyler. He is described as a white male, approximately 5 foot 10, 160 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes. It says that he has blonde hair, but he has like a little um, kind of scruff on his chin, and it okay. looks red. But he's wearing oh. a hat in the picture. So maybe he's a little like has some of those red undertones. Mm-hmm. He was last seen wearing black pants, a maroon t-shirt, and a baseball hat. So I guess the baseball hat might have been his signature look. Okay. Anyone with information regarding his whereabouts should contact the Delaware State Police Troop 6 by calling 302-633-5000. Or by dialing 911. All right. And then there are links to the Delaware State Police that you can click on. But I'm on uh, DSP. It's Delaware State Police. DSP.Delaware.gov. And they have an entire page of golden alerts or gold alerts. Oh, wow. So I wonder. Hmm. That must just vary state by state then, I wonder. Mm Mm-hmm. Because well, I've never heard of one. Yeah, no, neither had I. Well, everybody, thank you so much for coming along with us to Delaware. Um, hopefully you enjoyed this better sound quality, and this is going to be us moving forward. Killer Country has turned Yes. <laughs> so um, thankful. Yes. <laughs> if you want to support us, you can find us on Patreon at Killer Country Podcast on Patreon. If you'd like to follow us on Facebook, you can go to www.facebook.com backslash Killer Country Podcast. You can also see our case pictures, which I updated today, <laughs> caught up with all of the states. So sorry about that. We're going to get better, I promise. I'm sorry. That's my <laughs> fault. I've, it's I wouldn't okay. know where my head was at if it wasn't attached to my body. I, I got a good system now and we caught up, so we're good. Um, but you can see those case pictures on Facebook. You can also see them on our Instagram at Killer Country Podcast. And if you have any campfire stories that you'd like to share with us, if you have any um, case suggestions, if you just want to say hey to us, please feel free to email us at killercountrypodcast at gmail.com. And thanks again, everybody, for coming with us to Delaware. Um, Our next stop is Florida. (laughs) Oh, that's going to be some fun. I know. I saw something today. Uh, It was just like those um, random facts I learned today. And Mm -hmm. apparently, 
I don't know how many years ago it was, but at some point in history, they were trying to create a fake coral reef and like help the coral reef regenerate, which is a really good action. But they did it by dumping hundreds of tires into the ocean as like the base of this coral reef. Mm -hmm. And then obviously it didn't work. It's rubber in the ocean that doesn't grow anything. Um, The... I don't know if it was the National Guard or the Army or the Marines or whatever, um, the Navy probably since it's the ocean, but they had to use it as a training exercise and they had to dive and take each tire out literally one by one. For <laughs> There were hundreds of them. And oh after God. reading that, it said um, one of the comments on it was, I'm convinced that Florida is just a massive testing site for stupid shit. <laughs> Yes. No, there's this woman on TikTok that I follow. I can't remember her name right now, but she does like TikToks on Florida Woman Wednesday and uh, she sings it and she's like, Florida Woman Wednesday, you can't make this shit up. And she does the same thing for Florida Man Friday. Mm -hmm. It's it's insane. Like I would love to just do like a recording of all of these crazy like Florida Man things. Yes. But... I know we need to cover a full case. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just there's so much going on in Florida. Uh, there's so much. too much going on in Florida. All right, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in Florida. Bye.